None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. In April, we went down to Community Hemp Fair at the Cannabis Museum in Athens, Ohio. It was also one of their first ever exhibits at the museum. We met the curators there and had a great time. In this episode, I'll be talking all about that trip and playing some clips from people who spoke there. So the Cannabis Museum was a really cool place. It's uh, right outside of a little town about three hours west of Pittsburgh called Athens, Ohio. It's a little crunchy, kind of hippie-ish college town. Um, Ohio University is there and Hawking College is there where they developed the first cannabis lab technician program in the country. It's an associate's degree program and that was developed by my podcast partner for the Creative Science Journal Club, Dr. John Cachet. And there was another guy, uh, Thane Evans, who spoke, who helped develop that program there. Uh, the museum itself is a result of decades of uh, personal collection by Don Worthshafter. Don is actually, he actually just turned 72 uh, when we were there. We went to his uh, birthday potluck in the uh, top floor of the Cannabis Museum. He's been a cannabis activist for decades. He's a hemp expert. Research he did led to the development of Epidiolex, which is the first commercially available FDA-approved hemp-based drug. It's basically CBD. He knows a lot about uh, cannabis history and medicine. Um, the fact that doctors used to know the difference between strains that um, produce CBD and strains that produce THC, all this knowledge was wiped out after cannabis prohibition in 1937. So he's made a lifelong uh, mission to restore this history. And this uh, hemp exhibit was the first such exhibit there at the museum. Um, they did have an exhibit earlier uh, with psychedelic art, but I actually wanted to go to see the actual cannabis stuff. Um, and so this is their first really grand opening exhibit, uh, Hemp and Hackles. Um, there's plenty of uh, old pictures of uh, hemp farmers, and and there was uh, tools there. They used to use to strip the hemp, and those were the hackles. They look like big hairbrushes with really sharp teeth on them. They used to strip down the fibers. Uh, they had money there. It was hemp paper, was, uh, money printed on hemp paper. And they had a few jars there, and the next day we got to go up and see the bigger collection, just because I know uh, Dr. John, and um, we got to go to a little pot- potluck up there for a little bit. And uh, there's just medical jars uh, that say cocaine, opium on them, cannabis. They didn't call it marijuana. Of course, they didn't start calling it that until Prohibition. Harry Anslinger um, used racism as a big tool in trying to scare people away from cannabis. So it's a really cool place. Uh, They actually had um, 
part of Timothy Leary's library up in there. They had every edition of High Times from the 70s. There's, I'm sure there's tons of stuff I haven't seen yet, but yeah, get out there. If you're ever uh, near Athens, Ohio, or you just want to take a trip there, um, it's not an expensive place to stay. We stayed in a little hotel there. It was a really great time. We talked to hemp farmers, CBD farmers. Uh, we talked to them about the regulations they face. If they get one plant that's 0.4 THC, in order to be classified as hemp, it has to be under 0.3 THC. So if they get one plant that measures hot, then their whole crop is lost. So, you know, I was talking to a farmer. I'm like, farming is risky enough as it is, and they have to face all these really stupid regulations. So I think it's time for a national regulations, and it's time to let farmers grow for whatever they want to grow for, if they want to grow for medicine or they want to grow for actually fiber hemp. I recorded some of the speakers there. On Saturday, it was uh, April 22nd, Earth Day, two days after 420. Yeah, I will play these speakers and I'll introduce every one of them. I guess we can start with uh, Don Worthshafter. And I'm going to have a link in the description that tells you more about every single one of these speakers. Don has been a uh, cannabis activist since the 1960s and he's a lawyer and he's an expert on hemp. So I'm going to put him on first. That's Don. Um, we also have Thane Evans, like I said, with uh, Dr. John Cachet, developed the first cannabis lab technician program, and uh, I got to talk with him for a while. Speakers about, you know, hemp history. There's a speaker who talks about sustainability in Southeast Ohio. It's a great community down there, and so if you're interested in this stuff at all, yeah, visit the Cannabis Museum in Athens, Ohio. And here's Don. And I'll play the introduction by uh, Joy Beckerman, who's also been uh, a hemp and cannabis activist for decades. And uh, there'll be a link to all these people in the description if you want to find out more about them. So grateful that he's going to address the crowd. Don Ewartshafter. The Cannabis Museum's artifacts are comprised of the Wart Chapter Collection. The Wart Chapter Collection is the second largest collection of hemp and cannabis artifacts on the planet Earth. Uh, Don has been collecting, he's been involved in his activism and advocacy started in cannabis in the late 60s. His entire adult life has been dedicated uh, to this plant, to educating and liberating the plant, including as an attorney and as a collector. In 1990, as Thane said, uh, Don opened the Ohio Hempery. The Ohio Hempery was retail and wholesale and raw materials that then was responsible for multiple other, including my own uh, hemp business, retail and wholesale and manufacturing. He brought in sterilized hemp seeds and uh, had them pressed at the Ohio Hempery and folks made body care products and other things from them. He brought in fabric then that people uh, started to manufacture garments. Um, I wouldn't have had a hemp store and many of us wouldn't if we didn't have the source of the Ohio Hempery. At the same time that Don was creating the Ohio Hempery, um, he also became involved in a company breeding medical cannabis varieties in the Netherlands and that work evolved into over 25 years um, that resulted in a pharmaceutical or FDA approved drug that is now available on the market in the United States and in other international markets as well uh, and that is Epidiolix as well as Sativex. 
Um, this was Dawn's passion project to prove the absolute reality of the level of sophistication of, of medical cannabis in the United States, that deep history uh, that the United States government and that the pharmaceutical interests uh, tried to steal from all of us. So with that, could we please give Dawn E. Wirtschafter a round of applause for decades and decades and a lifetime of work. Thank you, Dawn. Hey, thank you, everybody. Yes, this project has been decades in the making, and it's been uh, waiting for today. We put out postcards three years ago, four years ago, when we thought we had a headquarters. And uh, we were going to be down the road there, but it didn't pass our fire test, so we couldn't do it. And so these postcards said, open. April 20th, 2020, okay? So here we are, three years late, but we got open, okay? Three years in a day. And I have a lot of thanks, and then we're gonna sit down because we got a really good speaker coming up. Um, I have, the staff of the Cannabis Museum is outstanding. Half of them are outstanding, out, standing out there right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, um, I don't even want to go into names. It's just, you know, there's a lot of people putting time into making this project work into having this as a facility for Athens. And, this is a very flexible facility. We went through a lot of extra work and time to make the exhibit space in there a public assembly auditorium. We could stuff it full of people. And we're looking for opportunities and projects that are going to do that. And we're going to keep this fiber show up this year. Next year we've got a couple of medical shows coming on. And we haven't figured out what we're going to do after that. We think of the museum as a whole lot of rooms that we have to build one room at a time. And so we thought that starting here with fiber was starting at the basics. This is how our ancestors first started using cannabis. And the tools that they used are right there. And I hope you take time to look around and get an explanation of what everything is and come back for our future exhibits and our events. And I really appreciate that we had the critical mass of people here to make this a successful launch for us. We have many sponsors that I should be thanking right now and all that. Uh, cool Diggs sponsored us even though they couldn't be here today. Things like that. Uh, Lance Taylor Sales down the road just sponsored us. So, you know, it's like, we, this is a good thing. We're getting the neighborhood going, and um, it's come a long way in a, the two years that we've been here, and the neighborhood's been great, and welcome to all of you. So that was Dawn Wirtschafter, and up next is the director of the Cannabis Museum, Kristen Robinson. Um, well, welcome everybody to the Cannabis Museum, Community Young Fair. I just want to um, speak about our exhibit right now, the Hemp and Half Tools exhibit. This was what Don wanted to do for our first exhibit. 
he wanted to talk about the hemp fiber. That was the most, that was his main thing, was the hemp fiber. And it, it, with Lisa's talk, talking about the pitfalls in the wool fiber industry, not having the supply chain in order to be able to process the fiber, to be able to, who's gonna buy your fiber in the end, what is your market? It's exactly the same situation in hemp fiber right now. There's no, there's no market for hemp fiber because there's nobody who wants to buy it. So this is, my goal is to try to help farmers to find people who want to use their product. So fiber hemp can be used for making yarns and things like that, making textiles. It can be used for making like hempcrete, like Sasha had the hempcrete block. Um, food can be used for hemp seeds and hemp oil. But again, it's just a supply chain issue. We need to have a, a, an end place for that fiber. We have a farmer that's growing fiber for us this year and we're gonna have some of that fiber hemp in the fall here to play with and play around with and use some of these machines and try to process some of this hemp in the old ways. Um, and really that's the way people process hemp even still today. All those hackles, that's what they're using. Brakes, that's what they're using to process hemp. Uh, the larger scale, there are some larger scale hemp industries coming in in Kentucky. They're making pressed fiberboard in Kentucky. I think North Carolina is getting really into the hemp production. Um, so it's, it's starting. I know that Washington State is really promoting hemp production, hemp fiber production as well. So it's just a matter of time and it's gonna catch on. So at the Cannabis Museum, we're really trying to build a community around cannabis, around hemp, around the culture, around the growers. This is why we've invited all the CBD people out today so that they can talk to people about what they're doing with the growing cannabis and, and just promoting it promoting it for everybody across the board. But we really are gonna rely on our community to help support us too. We're a nonprofit. We it, it takes a community support to help grow a nonprofit. And so we've gotten this far and um, it's really gonna be a community adventure as we move forward. Up next is Thane Evans who helped design the Cannabis Lab Technician Associates degree program at Hawking College with my podcast partner, Dr. John Cachet. Here's Thane. Cannabis class at Hockey College where I had taught the last few years. Uh, cannabis Lab Tech program was the first two-year degree in the country that Dr. Cachet organized, and I had the pleasure of helping develop further and creating some coursework and being the lead cannabis instructor for it in the past few years. Uh, you know, really where it all began for me was this book, and I used this book, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, uh, has been and will seemingly always be until, of course, the Cannabis Museum contributes uh, some more publications to the wide world of cannabis and hemp. I uh, used this book for my cannabis history class, and I brought it today um, because it happens to be a signed copy by Jack himself. And cool story, it was on Fish Tour, coming back from Festival 8 in 2009. And I uh, was introduced to this book going into ninth grade, summer of eighth grade, when I first experienced Canvas, uh, for better, of course. And uh, 
I had seen the online record and a friend had the book. And so coming back from that festival, I found this in a head shop and happened to be a signed copy and the owner there had about 10 of them. I brought it up and I said, is this for real? Like, is it really for sale? I said, yeah, you know, just for those who find them, it was out someplace in Wyoming. And so, incredible find. And um, I brought that today to just share that. And I uh, passed that around to my students in class. It's just something that I'm sure they didn't really appreciate or understand at the time, but maybe will later. <laughs> just teasing. Um, but no, that was, that was really great. And that's where I really kind of discovered cannabis. And so, it was about being able to explore cannabis spiritually, recreationally, as a musician, an artist. But it was really about the potential that we have in the future. Um, and how with the legalization, re-legalization, and resurgence of growing hemp in the United States with the 2018 Farm Bill, really offered uh, many people, what weed growers, the opportunity to grow cannabis legally. And so it really centered around CBD production. And that has great value. Um, but of course, the plethora of uh, opportunity that lies within hemp is far beyond just its medicinal value and lies, of course, in the fiber and grain and the possibilities there to really help continue to shape our world for the better in a sustainable and renewable way. I had actually learned about Don long before I ever knew I would meet him uh, because he's referenced in this book. His uh, Schlichten papers are referenced as part of the incredible story, which you know, I saw the name and I saw the connection to Ohio University. Both of my parents went to Ohio University and my mom's actually in the audience right there. Big shout out to her. Um, and so I was kind of had a family connection to Athens and Ohio University. And that caught my eye. And so then fast forward, you know, I actually got involved with the Canvas Museum and Don. And so everything's kind of coming full circle now. So I'm very grateful for that, very grateful for this community, and uh, really honored to be a part of it. Uh, the best friend that I was actually on fish tour with, that I got the Emperor Wears No Clothes with, he and I actually saw the Ohio Hempery come up for sale, like on Craigslist, like online or something. And you know, I don't even know if I made the connection then, um, but realized, well, well, that was Donnie's old business. Uh, you know, we had a pipe dream to get some family, friends, and investors to maybe take interest in the company and acquire it so we could be a part of it. Of course, you know, that didn't happen, but it was incredible to sort of have that connection in, in the background as well for me. Yeah, again, just back to JC, I can't let you go that easily. Uh, we met in 2016 and it was at the first cannabis symposium in Columbus. So we had gone on to promote a hybrid lighting and renewable energy focused cultivation system for the following few years. And like I mentioned, um, co-founded the Hawking College Cannabis Analytic Laboratory and the LabTech program. At that time, JC had introduced me to the Cannabis Museum because we had brought guest lecturers from the museum, Donnie, and uh, also students over to the old cannabis museum to take a tour and see all the old um, artifacts, medicinal bottles and all that that a lot of people don't know exist. We actually have some students here today that graduated from the program. You know, a couple things I remember growing up is my dad talking about hemp that would grow along the highway here, you know, off 33, and it was truly hemp, you know, it was just wild ditch weed, if you will, and how you know, he remembers it being eradicated, essentially. 
um, which I'm sure some of you can relate to having happened, you know, um, and that it really just didn't appear anymore. Well, I thought that was interesting, and so that was part of the fuel for me to continue researching uh, why that had happened exactly. Uh, another just funny thread here is my dad would say, and he does say, uh, better living through chemistry. And the irony is I don't think he actually knows that that's uh, DuPont's old company motto, or it's a der deriva derivation of it, it's derived from it. Uh, the phrase is actually better things for better living through chemistry. But um, just kind of funny because that, of course, was in reference to you know, the pursuit of you know, smoking cannabis and uh, doing what you like with your body, which of course is everyone's right. Up next is Sasha Sejetic. She's the program director at the Ohio Ecological Food and Farm Association. She was an instructor in agricology, which is the study of agriculture as it relates to a local ecosystem. And she talks about hemp farming and the challenges that hemp farmers face in Ohio. And her speech for some reason is a little noisy, but I hope you can uh, hear okay through the noise. Apologize for that. So I've had a lot of talks with Jim Belt, who is the head of Ohio's uh, hemp program. He works at the ODA. Unfortunately, the reason that fiber farmers still have to jump through all these hoops right now is because the ODA is really beholden to the USDA, right? Like, we can't make anything easier. We have to go by at least what the USDA says. And that's where you've got all of these um, testing restrictions, right? And licensure fees. Which really, I mean, given that, what, like 50% of the U.S. already has medical marijuana and about a third of those already have recreational legal, it seems really silly that we're still so worried about people getting high and that people might, might accidentally get high off of CBD hemp, God forbid. <laughs> it is a little silly. Ideally, the USDA gets their act together and says, okay, recreational is fine, just grow whatever kind of hemp you want, it's no big deal. Thankfully, about a month ago, we did have a bipartisan bill that was proposed. Um, Senator John Tester from uh, Montana and Senator Mike Braun from Indiana have proposed this bill to sort of separate industrial hemp as hemp grown for fiber, like for industrial uses. This is for fiber, this is for things like hempcrete, which is what some of the byproduct of fiber hemp can be used for. Um, for bioplastics, there's, there's so many uses and there's so many really cool companies doing a lot of research and development out there on fake leather, other kinds of plastic, um, fillers for like office chairs. There's this whole world of, of industrial hemp use that is really being held back by the fact that we're not growing it here because it's too expensive for anyone to try to grow fiber hemp. Um, this bipartisan bill hopefully gets passed and then folks can, farmers can start growing it no testing fees, no licensure fees. They'll go through a visual inspection, which someone will come out to their farm and say, yes, this is obviously very tall, skinny fiber hemp. There are no bugs on it. You're going to be harvesting it before it flowers anyways. You're good to go. 
If for some reason they did not pass the visual test, they would then provide documentation which says, no, look, this is a variety that I've planted. Here's the seed pack. This is what I've used. This is, it really is a fiber variety. It just didn't make it too high this year. If they didn't do that, then third strike, they would actually be subjected to the physical testing, chemical testing of the plant. So keep your fingers crossed, contact anyone who you want to in the Ohio, your representatives and whatnot, and let them know that this bill, it's, it's good for farmers, basically. It's gonna let us grow fiber hemp. Um, because so many farmers, I don't know if you guys, and there's, this is the sad thing, right? Like so much knowledge on farming hemp has been lost because it was illegal for so long. The nice thing is, um, we really can farm hemp here with equipment we've already got. So, like I said before, you're looking at seeding 70 to 80 pounds per acre. Um, you can use seed drills that you already have, generally about half an inch deep and about seven inch rows is what the One Acre Exchange Project down in North Carolina has found to be successful seeding rates. They're doing an amazing job down in North Carolina, I have to say. Um, through Fibershed, who our dear friend Lisa will be talking about after I, and then the One Acre Exchange, those folks that are doing a lot of this testing on actually growing fiber hemp in the US, down in North Carolina. Once you've got it growing and it's ready to harvest, do you guys, are, do you guys know what a, like a sidebar sickle mower is? It's this, it's like a long bar that sticks out, it's got a whole bunch of blades on it, basically it's got chop, 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 it sticks out on the side of the tractor. You go through and you mow, all your stalks get dropped. There's a process called redding. Have you guys heard of that before? It's basically, it's rotting. You're letting it rot for about a couple weeks outside and the dew and the bacteria and the fungus are gonna help start breaking down the pectin and the lignin. Those are the two parts of the fiber plant that you don't want because all you want is these long, beautiful cellulose fibers. The pectin and the lignin is part of generally the herd, which goes into things like hempcrete blocks. Once you've let it rot in the field for a little bit, you can then start, a lot of folks will sort of turn it with the hay tines, have you guys seen those in the field, those really big pinwheel circles that sort of just toss it and form it all into rows. It fluffs it a little, it helps it dry a bit. Once it's in those rows, you can bale it with a large round baler. So anyone that's cutting hay already, could be rotating this in to their theoretically corn, soy, wheat, hay rotation that they've probably already got going because they already own all this equipment. Um, here's, here's the crux though, right? So farmers can grow all this. We've got the equipment. We don't have any processing facilities in Ohio. I do believe there are some in Pennsylvania, um, but the larger ones are really several states away and in states that have a little more lax laws when it comes to growing and legalization. After farmers get it all bailed up, they're gonna ship it off somewhere where it gets decorticated, which is sort of like a fancy mechanized process of all the really cool old tools that you can see in the Cannabis Museum right next door here. Um, basically what they're doing is they're taking the stalks and like I said, you're breaking apart the herd, which is this woody outer coating, and you want to extract all those long cellulose fibers. It's the xylem and the foam. Do we have any botanists or like plant nerds? Nobody? Did you guys remember xylem and phloem from high school biology maybe? Okay. It's like the parts of the plant on the inside 
that sends the food and the water up and down the plant. So these are these long, beautiful long cellulose fibers on the inside that we create all of our hemp products with. Once the herds are separated from the fiber, the fiber then has to be degummed, which is like, like I said, that pectin and that ligament that you don't need gets worked off of it. Now the redding starts that process. Currently, the process for it is kind of toxic, unfortunately. It's a high alkali, high temperature bath that takes a long time to do, but there are folks doing um, some experiments and finding more low alkaline, low temperature ways, and they're adding in um, pectin lyase, which is just a natural enzyme that, fun I think it's usually fungi have this enzyme, because you know, fungi's really great at breaking down old wood in the forest, right? That's lignin, wood is lignin, so, trying to find more natural ways, more organisms on the planet that already do this work for us rather than having to bring in chemicals is gonna keep hemp as sustainable as possible. Once the pectin and lignin get worked off of it, you've got this product that then obviously has to be um, carded and softened a bit. Um, but any, any plant that can process linen can process hemp as well. So, what I'm theorizing and what I'm hoping and what I'm proposing for most places is that at least having decortication facilities placed regionally throughout the state. Um, if we hit up the four corners or you know maybe three layers of top, middle, and bottom of the state, if we had decortication facilities where farmers could then bring all of their bales in, get it decorticated, possibly have a degumming facility on that as well, or sending it off to any linen processing facility that could then degum and card and turn this into usable fiber for us. Um, that's really, it's the value chain is where we're falling short in Ohio. So it's gonna take policy change and it's gonna take value chain creation if we, to, to make this happen for Ohio farmers basically. Uh, again, sorry about the noise, but next one's a little more clear. Um, this is Josh Crozier. He's an agricultural consultant in and around Athens, Ohio, and he's going to speak a little bit about sustainability. The other day, about a month ago, Donnie called me and he said, I need one of the world's leaders on sustainability. Can you please speak at my event? <laughs> no, totally kidding. I am no expert in the field. I probably should be. I, I've been in it about 20 years, all locally. I got my first degree at Hawking College, and then I moved on to Rio Grande, and then I got my MS at Ohio University. So I should be an expert, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, but I can ramble on for about 10, 15 about sustainability. <laughs> What does sustainability mean, really? You know, like a lot of people kind of look at sustainability like, okay, it's the environment. How much are we depleting of these natural resources? How much are we taking and not giving back? But there's, other, there's two other pillars to sustainability. Um, and they're also very important pillars. And that is the economical and societal pillars of that three pillar system and if one doesn't work you know you're kind of relying on even if one works you don't have the other two so it really doesn't doesn't 
really help you a lot of times. Um, so let's talk about that. So, say you have a field. Not only, not only to be sustainable, do you need to produce a worthwhile crop, all the money to support you as an owner and your property and your property taxes and all that, but that ain't it. You need the employees that work for you to also be able to support and make a living and make a, a way, a life, you know, like you're not just drilling them, you're not just paying them seven dollars an hour to go out and run out in your fields and do all the work for you. That does not create a sustainable system. I can tell you a lot about what's not sustainable. Not so much about what the perfect system looks like. But anyways, going back to that, it isn't <clears throat> not just environmentally, not just the people that work for you, but it's also what do you give back to the community? And that's more what I'm here to say that I do feel like I know that tier of it a little better um, and know what that looks like, I think. Um, yeah, so can the people in your community afford the goods that you're producing? You know, that's where the societal thing really boils into play. And, and if you're just drilling that community for you and your employees and that's it, and that is not sustainable either, you know? It's all not sustainable. So now that we know what sustainable kind of is, it's even more complicated by the fact that we don't really know what a sustainable system looks like. Because what does sustainability really mean? It means that you're preserving it for future generations. You know, the natives looked at it like, if we're gonna fish in this stream, there better be that same amount of supply for seven generations later for our people. And I think that that's the way we kind of need to look at things too, you know, like, I just see things that maybe we can make a better attempt at, at kind of approaching differently. But once again, I'm not an expert and I don't know the answers. And I don't even know what a fully sustainable system actually looks like. I can tell you what the companies I consulted have done to approach that sustainability threshold in the hemp industry in particular. And a lot of that gears and relies upon sampling, soil sampling, water sampling, knowing what's already in that system before you just go randomly dumping a whole bunch of stuff out there because some hydro book said you need part one and part X, Y, and Z. You know, you test that soil, you get that microbes, you get the microbes thriving, and you kind of let that community do its thing in the soil. And I think that's really cut down on the cost, the cost to produce, the cost to produce a pound in the agricultural system. Will we know if it's sustainable? 30 years from now, check back. Because that's really what it's about. Like sustainability, you really can't measure. Like I see a lot of companies saying, hey, we're sustainable. It's like, well, that's great. I'm not cutting down on these companies because I'm the same way. We have sustainable practices, but is the operation really sustainable? I have yet to really see a fully functioning, stable, community that doesn't rely on outputs in its true sense. So I guess my message is more that 
you know, we're kind of relying on faith once again. We do what we think is most sustainable. And I think taking that approach will get us where we need to be, you know. Um, also, something I really want to mention is like the support that you can have for your local community. You know, like maybe parts of your picture aren't sustainable and they can't map out every carbon footprint that you spend or don't spend or this or that, but I know somewhere in the picture supporting local community, even if that's one tier of it, that's so important to me. You know, what the ideal day looks like for me is I wake up, go chug about a half a carton of Snowville, you know, wake up, Baby mama kissed me on the way out the door. Have a great day, you know. I'm heading to the coonskin out in Amesville to get a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. Gotta support them. Great country shop, head on town to the town's end. Maybe see Dave, get a local coffee, meet my buddy there. He says there's something crusty in my beard. I realize it was Snowville. Uh, work my way out to the pharmacy, you know, and refill an order for Modern Remedies, a company I'm working with trying to help promote, you know, uh, just spreading the love. Maybe in that ideal day, I pick up a six pack of Jackie O's and get it ready for later. You know, go pick up my daughter from stages. You know, like these people, the Casas, the, the people of this community that we're really known for, like we need more of that. We need more of that support, really. Like that's one tier that we can control. What resources do we really have in this area to exploit anymore? We don't have oil, really. We don't have gas, we don't have coal. We don't have none of that no more. What do we got? We got forestry and we got agriculture. So the people that support these agricultural communities, forestry communities, you know, that's one way of creating a more sustainable system. Maybe not entirely but really what is that it's just an ideal I feel like that we all want to strive to do better with you want to be organic you want to support organic or locavore or sustainable or regenerative that really that what it boils down to is like it's all part of the same energy that we can use together to like try to support something but none of it's perfect I mean you're buying organic lettuce from California where the water's dry just so you don't support your farmer who may have a little bit of sprinkled non-certification on him or he didn't have the 1600 bucks to become certified like that's not sustainable i get it it's organic lettuce but it's not really sustainable and that was it that was a really great time it was a really nice community of people it was uh you know the university working with the farmers reminded me of when i lived in north carolina and I was a farmer myself, so I'm so glad it's less than three hours from here. So I'm going to be going and visiting the Cannabis Museum a couple times a year from here on out. And you should too. Check them out at CannabisMuseum.com. There's links to all those speakers in the description if you'd like to learn more about what they're talking about. And please like, subscribe, share, rate, review the Creative Science Podcast. See us on Twitter. See us on Facebook. See us on TikTok at K-R-A-D-M Science. 
music is rising. The song is called Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.